soft opening. We have a wedding here this afternoon, so we had to get it done today. But we're going to have a little more work done. You're not going to see any visible wires up here. They're all going to be in the ground. And the center screen will be gone. There are going to be screens on both sides with the songs on them. And then the lighting will be configured just a little bit differently. So there's a couple little tweaks coming over the next couple of weeks. So that's what we have to look forward to. That's exciting. Thanks for all the guys who, girls who put the effort into it. So I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart this morning. And that's the thought of, of being faithful more than focusing on success, more than focusing on sort of the outcome, maybe even being overwhelmed by the success. And I think, should I relieve kids to go to cl- class? Because kids might not want to hear my message. So if you identify as a kid this morning, then you can leave as well. That's not necessary, Kathy, that's right. <laughs> I identify as a kid. So yeah, the thought of being faithful versus being successful, the sound to me is really hot. Is it that loud to you or no? No? Yeah? No? So just something to think about, Mark. Um, Part of my passion on this subject is the fact that for years I've seen in the scriptures where God has really spoken to me about verses that relate to being faithful more than being successful. So that's one of my own kind of private agendas. But the other reason is the increased cultural lies that I'm pretty sensitive to because I live in that culture of mental health. I get, I get involved in those lies all the time. And the last few decades, these lies have been sort of increasing. We've gotten used to them, but they're really not true. So I hit just a couple lies just to kind of get you exposed to what I'm talking about. One of them is if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. Well, quite frankly, that's not totally true. You can work hard, but some things you just can't be. Sort of the American dream, anyone can be president. Well, that's not totally true. Anyone can't be president. But there's this thought where I can be the greatest. You can be the best in the world. I was thinking of the comments that I heard from the recent death of Muhammad Ali, Ali, who was in his own right and maybe well-deserved, the best in in his field. But these little kids are saying, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the next Ali. Well, not everybody can do that. It's one thing to be your best. It's another thing to be the best, which sort of ties into the third one, that everyone is a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. Well, everyone's not a winner, and everyone doesn't get a trophy. And so it's the difference between really working hard at what you have versus really believing that you are the best. And some kids are being raised in a sort of entitled mentality that they are the best, versus you are doing your best. It's a subtle shift, but I think the difference is significant. And we'll unpack it a little bit and see if you, see if you can agree with that. And then in, in Christian circles, sometimes it can become almost an idol. Uh, be the master of your own destiny, so to speak. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says this, more than other idols, personal success and achievement leads to a sense that we ourselves are God that our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be the best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means no one's like you. You are supreme. Unfortunately, Scripture gives us some nice antidotes for those culturally misleading ideas of success. And so one passage that explains this very nicely, it's the parable of Jesus. Jesus' parable when he talks about the talents. It's recorded in both Matthew and Luke. 
And a parable is a story that Jesus told that had a, had a spiritual lesson to it. And some of you have read this passage numerous times, and some of you may not be familiar with the passage at all. So for the sake of time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize it for you, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into it that way. So through the parable, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey. Before he goes, he gives three servants different amount of money, which was denominated by talents, which was weights used for money in that day. So to one he gave five talents, to another one he gave two talents, and to third he gave one talent, and he gave each one of them talents according to their ability. And that'll come back, we'll talk about that in a second, it was according to their ability. So he gives them to them, he says, take care of this, and then he comes back. And he wants to know what they did with the money that he'd given them. And the first and second servant had invested their talents and had doubled their money. And they received the master's praise. And Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way. Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. Because the text actually says they went from being servants to rulers over some things. Kind of interesting paraphrase there. And the third servant, who was given the one talent... He safeguarded his money, but did nothing to increase it. And as a result, he was condemned for his inactivity. He hid it. He hid it out of fear. He said, I was afraid, and so I hid it. And we're going to talk more about that as well. So the master leaves. He entrusts some money to his servants, five talents, two talents, one talent. And he says, take care of this. He comes back. Two of them have doubled it. One of them just hit it, brought back what he had been given. So there's, I think, at least five things we can pull from this as far as the biblical meaning of success while dispelling the cultural myths I spoke of. And the first one is on the screen. Success is the product of our work. Success is the result of, the product of our work. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Paul Paul told the church in Thessalonica that if someone didn't work, They shouldn't eat. And then in Proverbs we read, those who work the land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. So a farmer has to work the land to get the crops, but he can't guarantee the outcome. We know that certainly in Wood County. We see that all the time. He can't guarantee the success, but without work, he definitely will not have a harvest. So he has to work. See, the man receiving just one talent, he didn't work. And he earned nothing. It's our job to be faithful with with what God has given us. We are to work using our talents to glorify God, to serve the common good, to further the kingdom. Biblical success is working diligently in the here and now, using all the talents that God has given us to produce the return that's expected by the master when he comes back. So the second point I think we can take from this is that God always gives us everything we need to do what he has called us to do. Paul said it in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things that God intends me to do, I can do everything that God wants me to do because God strengthens me. The master in in the parable expected his servants to do more than passively preserve what was entrusted to them. God expects expects us to generate a return 
by using our skills and abilities toward a productive end. The servant who had received five talents had everything necessary to produce five more. The servant who had two talents had everything necessary to produce two more. And the servant had one talent, had everything necessary to produce one more, but out of fear, he chose to do nothing. See, fear trumps faith if we let it. That servant didn't have faith. He actually, text actually says he was afraid of the master. A few years ago, the leadership of this church believed God was entrusting to us the need to make some directional changes. So we didn't really know how things were going to turn out, but we only knew the next steps we needed to take in order to be faithful with the directional change. So here we are today, a new mission culture to know Jesus and make him known, a new facelift to the sanctuary, and on the 17th of July, we're going to have a new pastor here, Lord willing, logistics working out well with travel from Texas. So we attempted to be faithful with what was entrusted to us, and we knew God was in control of the outcome, and we weren't. So in another, I don't know, 10, 15 years, we'll know more of what God chooses to do to bless our faithfulness. Now, it's no secret that we face a little heat along the way, and when you attempt to follow God, pushback can happen. That's why it's so important to stay faithful and let God take care of the success. We can see that maybe more clearly as when a new life has been entrusted to you, called a baby. Your job is to be faithful with raising that child. You don't really know how things are going to turn out, and there's often a lot of pushback, there's often a lot of opposition until adulthood or maybe beyond, sometimes. The key is to stay faithful to the mission. Stay faithful to the journey and let God take care of the success. Just like the servant who out of fear didn't invest his talent, so too with parenting. I see it a lot in my work. Out of fear, parents back away from it. And they let the kids raise the parents, which gets pretty ugly. Fear trumps mission if we let it. It can trump the mission that we're on if we let it. And fear can make cowards of us all if we listen to its message more than God's words to us. So Paul said in Ephesians that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us in this thing called life. In another passage in Ezekiel, the Lord told Ezekiel to take, his, take the Lord's word to heart and then share it with the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Ezekiel himself was in exile. And God told him to speak the words, whether they listen or not. In other words, determined to be faithful in speaking the word, not worrying about the success of them receiving the word. So too with our mission, to know Jesus and to know him well and then make him known to others whether they listen or not. That isn't the issue. We've been faithful to know Jesus ourselves and then make him known to others. And that's the call. That's the part of being faithful. That's the part of utilizing, uh, being faithful with what has been entrusted to us. The third thing we can pull out of this parable is that we're not all created equal. The narrative says each man was given talents according to his ability. 
which, of course, the master knew and our father knows. The master understood that the one-talent servant was not capable of producing as much as the five-talent servant. Now, initially, we say, wait a second, that doesn't seem fair, especially in today's culture, which is why I'm part of the reason I'm bringing this up, is the cultural uh, trend, the cultural lies are so strong, it doesn't seem fair. But intuitively, we know that diversity is woven into the fabric of our society. We know that. We are not all created equal. One commentator put it this way. In a free society, absent of dishonesty and cronyism, right, taking that off the picture, Disparity of wages is not a sign of injustice. It's the result of God's diversity within his creation. I like that. He goes on to say, but even though we're not created equal in regards to the talents given, there's an equality found in this parable and in God's economy. It comes from the fact that it takes just as much work for the five-talent servant to produce five more talents as it does for the two-talent servant to produce two more talents. And that's why the reward given to each by the master is the same. See, the master measures success by the degree of effort or faithfulness. Here's the fourth thing we pull from that. The fourth thing that we pull from that is, there it is. We work for the Lord and not our own selfish agenda. It was not uncommon in those days for the master to address possessions to their servants in their absence. If we're followers of Christ, we are his servants. We choose to die to self and follow him. The Bible teaches us that everything we have, whether it's acquired or given at birth, is God's. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're not our own, we've been bought with a price. So Christ has a claim to everything which belongs to us, everything which may be turned to good. So we're told to glorify God in the use of our bodies. Our end is not self-satisfaction, but God-satisfaction. However, that does not mean that winning is wrong. If God gives you the ability to win when competing with others, and you give God the credit. Remember the 80s film? You start bringing up 80s films, you've eliminated part of the room, I realize that. But possibly remember Chariots of Fire. Eric Little believed that God made him a runner and believed that God made him fast. And the line that we remember so much is, when I run, I feel his pleasure. We might remember that. But he also says, to give that up, running, instead of going to the mission field, to give that up would be to hold him, God, in contempt. To win is to honor God. I love this. See, winning is relative to what others have, Your success is relative to what you have. Winning is relative to what others have. Success is relative to what you have. So we're not all winners, contrary to current cultural lies, because winning depends on who else is playing the game. But we can all be successful when we do the absolute best we can. When we give it our best with whatever God has entrusted to us, Both servants were successful, five talents, two talents, even though one ended up with a greater return. There is no fault in that. Because we live in a fallen world, we may not always feel his pleasure when we are being faithful to do the work that God has given us. 
or at least not the pleasure we're going to feel in heaven. Again, never so true as when in parenting, not always pleasurable when you're parenting. But to the degree that we remind ourselves that we're here to honor God, we find peace in that faithfulness. Seeking to win to honor him. See, the, the one talent servant was in it for himself. He was fearful. He didn't know God. Ken Jenkins spoke a couple weeks about the benefit of really knowing God. He said, I feared you to be a, a, a sort of a, a powerful, demeaning, expecting master, expecting re- results when you didn't sow anything. And, and he didn't really know the heart of God. And so out of fear, he self-absorbed and not God-focused. So he just, he just hit it. He just buried it and did nothing with it. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to get fearful about something that might be in front of us, about a challenge God has given us, about a new opportunity, and just kind of walk away from it. But then we're really investing in self or not really investing in God. So I think the final uh, message we can pull from this, final thought, is that we will be held accountable. See, the unfaithful servant who had one talent, he didn't waste the master's money. He wasted an opportunity. He wasted an opportunity. The money was there. Brought it back. Here's what I got. Here's what I'm giving to you. But he wasted the opportunity. And as a result, he was judged wicked and lazy. Not about you, but I've got a lot of wasted opportunities in my trail behind me. You think about that. You know, the person you met on the plane that you're probably not going to see again, you wasted the opportunity. Didn't share. I had a neighbor across the street who died. And I felt really bad that I had connected with this guy, but only in the surface level. I had never gone below the surface with a guy in the spiritual realm. And I had wasted the opportunity to share my faith with him. And it was done, finished. It's not going to happen again. And so I can relate to that one talent servant because I feel like I've been there. We are responsible for what we've been given, and one day we'll be held accountable. Genesis 1.28, which I'm going to flash up on the screen, is sometimes referred to as the creation mandate or the, the cultural mandate. Go ahead and put Genesis 1.28. There we go. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Nancy Piercy, in her book, The Total Truth, explains why it's been called sort of the cultural mandate. She says this, The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, in her words, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music, The passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. So the introduction of sin has corrupted all areas of culture. Now there's some differing opinions as to whether we as Christ followers should be redeeming the culture, merely influencing the culture by teaching God's standards or shaping the culture. I'm not going to solve that dilemma here now. But one thing's clear. We are told 
to make disciples of all nations. We're not here to merely wait for our fire insurance to kick in. We're here as ambassadors of the Creator. That's a powerful thought. Think that one through. We're created beings placed into God's created world. This is not our world. I did not create myself. We work at the pleasure of our Lord. And our work should be driven by our love for, not our fear of, in the scared sense, our love of our Master. And our only desire should be to hear Him say, when He returns, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Master. So I'm going to close with a quote from a man who's a committed Christian who's the most successful basketball coach in college basketball history. Who's that? John Wooden. Thank you very much. Didn't you have to say UCLA? When he was asked how he defined success, and if you've read much of John Wooden's quotes, he's got some fabulous, fabulous quotes. The guy was a deep, committed Christian. He preferred the locker room more than the court because he preferred lives changed more than games won. And he ended up winning games. Go figure that one out. But he said, success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you made the effort to become the best of which you are capable. One comment I'm often known to say is, success is when you lay your head on the pillow at night, knowing that you are faithful to do what God had called you to do, more than successful. And there's a balance to ensure that we do our best to glorify God and not just make ourselves look good. It isn't about me, it's about God. So there's that natural tension in there. So I'm going to close with these two thoughts. First one is, think back to the parable of the talents that I just read and see which servant might best represent your life. As I was doing that myself, I intuitively thought, I'm kind of the two-talent guy. I don't really feel like I was given five talents. I don't feel like I've squandered it. I feel like I'm like a two-talent guy. And then God, in his infinite wisdom, shows up this week. This week, while I'm having breakfast with a, with a friend who I sought out to seek some counsel for professional things, and he said, Tim, it almost seems like you're kind of wasting your talent here. He said, have you ever heard of the parable of the talents? <laughs> okay, now what's the chance of that happening, right? Well, you know, I have heard of that once. He said, it almost seems like you're wasting your talents over here. And I thought, whoa. And I was going to ask everybody else to kind of analyze their stuff. I think I'm doing pretty good. He said, you're kind of wasting it here. Yeah, thanks, God. Pretty convicting. I found myself sort of checked out of the conversation for a minute while I just sort of did some business with God. Okay, back to breakfast. So, yeah, kind of think through. Where are you in that scale? And then the second thing is, in, the, in your quiet time this week, inquire as to God as to what area of your life he's calling you to increase your faithfulness. You've already got something going on, maybe. So what should you increase? Not for your benefit, but for God's benefit. So just give that some thought. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to have a chance in just a moment as they play the last three songs to exercise our faithfulness as those of us who are Christ followers understand a need for a Savior, Jesus being our Savior, He calls us to be faithful in remembering his death until he comes. And so sometime during the last set, 
take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine. Remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for our sins. And that's, that's the compelling motivation, above all, to be faithful, is what Jesus did for us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you uh, just for the clarity of the stories that you tell us. It's such a clean story, God. It makes so much sense. And we are all writing our own story. And God, we want you to be happy, uh, satisfied with our story. But we recognize that some areas of our life maybe are filled with fear. And some of our areas of our life maybe are filled with tremendous productivity. God, we, we want you to be pleased when you see us. We want you to say, well done, a good and faithful servant. So God, thanks so much uh, for your love for us. Thank you for your son. And we remember this morning, God, what he did for, did for us in the cross. And that motivates us to be faithful to what you've given us. God, be pleased with us today. In Christ's name, amen.